Are you taking yourself seriously as a business owner? Do you set boundaries? Are you being professional? It's time to start owning the tasks that come with running your business and stop feeling icky around those business terms. Accept what you need to know. Find your needs and start applying business strategies in order to balance and grow your business and personal life. Well, how businessy do you need to be? Welcome to Pattern Shift. I'm Saskia de Feiter, and today I'm talking to multi-craftentialist Cal Patch. I know there should be a better word for that, but she can do a lot of things. For the first 15 minutes, we're going to learn about Cal, her journey, who she is, and what she's done. And then she's going to give us some insights into the different business models and strategies that she's applied. Although she wouldn't use those terms herself, she's actually never written a business plan, as most of you probably haven't, and that's not a bad thing. Day-to-day life as a creative business owner can be very lonely and overwhelming, leaving no time to actually grow your business. The Pattern Shift Podcast gives you business insights and actionable tips to help you rise out of the day-to-day swamp and start to become more visible and move your business forward. Find out how you can be part of helping crafters move away from fast fashion and become a value-based business owner who's on top of things running a business that's more sustainable for yourself, your family, and our planet. In this 45-minute episode, we'll be demystifying some business concepts and terms. We'll be looking at some different business models and their pros and cons, navigating the elephant in the room, asking for fair pay, and talking about the value of learning from experienced business owners. By the end of this episode, you'll hopefully learn that it's not about the business terms and what you call things. It's about what they can do for you. Start to think about how business models and strategy can bring you balance and feel more confident about making the next choice you'll want to make on your journey. And gain insights and inspiration without going to business school, but just from connecting to experienced business owners. Now, before we start, don't forget to sign up for our emails via patentshift.com and get regular and actionable business tips in your mailbox. Or, alternatively, find the link in the show notes. Welcome, Cal. So happy to have you on my podcast. And how are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm thrilled to be here. So can you describe what you do by finishing this sentence? I help people. I help people learn how to make their own clothes would be the simplest. Because it's so empowering and the ability to make their own clothes with your own measurements in mind is just like, I mean, it's everything because when we buy clothes, I mean, we know there's so many reasons that it's problematic to buy clothing, but maybe at the top of the list is that they usually don't fit you. And so to make your own clothes based on your body, because actually what I should elaborate and say, not just making clothes, but to draft your own patterns is really the special niche that I teach. And so drafting from your own measurements 
makes everything basically already fit from the start. And so it's a beautiful thing, even though I know it sounds very intimidating. I've made some small steps into that new world, but I can I can see if it's new to you that it might sound really, really hard. But it's so worth it, isn't it? It's like opening a door to Narnia. Exactly. And also the way that I teach it, makes it really doable and accessible, I think. Whereas um, I don't imagine most people really even know how pattern drafting is usually taught. But like the way I learned in fashion school, it really didn't make sense to me. And I still hear from people in school and they still kind of learn that same way. So I've kind of made up a method that's very logical and practical and very accessible and it's often easier than buying a pattern and trying to work with it when it's not drafted for you. So people tell me all the time that they actually now find the drafting easier. So do you have to be super creative to do this? Not at all. It's a very useful skill to know if you have those inclinations, but um most of what I teach people to draft and what they end up doing are just the very simple, basic garments that we all wear, like T-shirts and simple tops and tunics and skirts. And I've been lured into teaching like a very simple pant, like a pull-on elastic pant, even though I don't really wear pants. But like the clowns, I always look around the room when... I'm teaching a live class to just to see, because somebody usually asks something like, isn't this going to be really complicated and hard? And, you know, we're going to have to learn about tons of darts and seams and all this stuff. But I'm like, look around. What we're all wearing is really so simple. We don't wear complicated garments with many, many pattern pieces and seams these days. So yeah, really what I've teach most people to make is just very basics and then they if they want they can take those basics and spin them off into all sorts of like fantastical creations if that's what they're after but for the most part i see people just making simple things that they'll wear every day yeah that makes so much much sense let me just tell you this small little story i was traveling and i was taking a train to basel to see my friends and there was a huge delay and I couldn't move from the platform. So I was just standing there watching all the people. And because making my own clothes and my wardrobe in a conscious way is just top of the head always, I was looking at all these people and thinking, okay, so what is the common demeanor in all of this? What are people actually wearing? And let's say that we, the, cha- the world would change dramatically. And we would all start wearing some sort of a uniform. Now, don't go mailing to me about my political views. That's not about that. It's just what I saw is that people wear white sneakers in the Netherlands in this in 2023, white sneakers, black straight legged pants, more than jeans, which was amazing, and black bubble coats. So this is what we would look like. And this is what people that would be the least complaining if that was if that was the uniform. Now, I know that you and me probably wouldn't choose to make a a black bubble coat because that's not the most sustainable process. 
But if you do make your own basic outfits, t-shirts, skirts, leggings, or, or pants, and they fit well, there's no reason to buy anything anymore. Could it be that simple? Totally. Like, I mean, really my uniform, although no one who looked at me every day would ever say I wore a uniform because it looks very different every day. But generally, it's always some form of tunic or dress over leggings. That's pretty much what I wear every day because it's just the most comfortable, easy, looking good. Like, like it just has everything going for it, in my opinion. I mean, I guess partly I'm lucky that I don't have to go to work anywhere that has some kind of dress code or, you know, strict. Well, I guess that's what a dress code is. I don't need to redefine it. But, um, you know, I can wear whatever I want. But to me, it's just all about comfort and comfort, but also looking good. Although that always like leads me down a weird path of like what, you know, looking good is very subjective. And I just want to look sort of creative and colorful. Like that's what makes me happy and comfortable. I feel like often when you say comfort, you know, it just implies like sweatpants and a baggy sweatshirt. Everything baggy. Yeah. Yeah. And I might often be baggy, but like it's, I hope to, to think it's sort of a baggy with style kind of thing. Um, or like intentionally baggy, but I don't always wear baggy. Anyway, that's also (laughs) fit. Fit is another like huge topic of like, what does fit mean? And fit is very subjective and, you know, but I, we're not there yet. How about if you, if you make your own wardrobe, I think people get overwhelmed by the idea of making a full wardrobe, but going into this uh, journey myself, um, just making good quality stuff that you actually really like and don't need to um, replace so often kind of makes it that you don't have to make very much. Like you don't have to make a lot of things, right? Um, right. Yeah. Um, like I don't really make a ton of things all the time. I mean, I I do because I'm also making things custom for other people or things that I make to sell at markets and things. So I do make a lot of stuff, but for my own wardrobe, I'm not making tons of stuff all the time. And I've heard a lot of, I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, I hear a lot of interviews with people who sew and they talk about like all the garments they've made and how, and how they don't wear them like that. I know is the whole premise behind me made May was getting people to wear their things that they make. And none of I don't really relate to any of that. Cause, but I think it's because I am a clothing designer and I've been one for over 30 years. So like I didn't come from the same direction that a lot of people are, are people who are learning to sew now. Um, but yeah, you don't need to make a lot of pieces. Um, you can just start small with some very simple, practical things. And then usually when people make one thing and then 
it's successful. Like, and maybe the first version is not so successful. It might need some tweaking. But once you get all the little, you know, fitting and details worked out the way you like them, then you can make it again so much easier the second time. So, like, I think it makes sense to start with one pattern. And, you know, I, I acknowledge everyone doesn't need to draft their own patterns too. Like just learning to make clothes from, there's so many amazing indie pattern designers these days. So for most people I know, that's going to be fine to use other people's patterns and you might tweak them a little to get them just how you want. But then once you've made something once and tweaked it a little bit, making two or three more is just so simple. Um, as opposed to like knitting where, yeah, I mean, you, the first time is the hardest, but the second and third time are still going to take as much time, yeah, you know, but definitely. I think with sewing, with sewing, I think it goes a lot quicker after yeah. you've worked out all the little kinks. I don't think I've ever knit one pattern twice, maybe a pair <laughs> of socks, but no, no. It, it usually feels like you've invested enough time and, Yes. You're like ready to do something yes. else. That's amazing. Yeah. What I'm thinking is the process before the actual making of the clothes is so important to to figure out what kind of clothes you need and uh, what your life looks like. So you don't end up with seven ball gowns when all you have that year is one barbecue. <laughs> um, um, and I think sometimes in, in the in the process of slow fashion, sometimes we forget that it's so slow that we have to take in account the whole part before you even start sewing or drafting. But do you do you have any feelings when it comes to that? How did you end up with your personal style? It was it a process or was it just always there? I don't know that I really have a good answer to that, and I'm always drawn to. You know, these programs I see, like, I know Seamwork does something every year about, like, you know, creating your own wardrobe and, like, figuring out exactly what you need and what your style is. And I've just always been sort of, I think because I started in it, well, yes, I, on the one hand, I'm very fluid and, like, can flow wherever I want to. On the other hand, I think I'm also pretty consistent over time. Like I, I don't really respond to trends. I think a lot of the way I am is sort of like a backlash against coming out of the fashion industry as well. So, you know, like trends are, they kind of turn me off because I, I, I can see the end in sight because I know that they're created just to get people wanting a thing that then we're going to be told is not the thing in six months. So I reject all of that. For like me. just saying what you don't want, knowing what you don't want is also the answer to a question, right? Absolutely. That's true. That's a good point. I, yeah, I just, I know what I like at this point. I mean, it also comes with age, like definitely in my 20s and probably even my 30s. You know, I tried all the trends and like, you know, it, we have different priorities usually when we're younger and we, you know, we love to dress up and try different things out. But then over time, you just figure out 
the kinds of clothes you like to wear and and I look for things like I try to make things now that I know will like I I honestly don't even think about it anymore. Like I just, if I'm drawn to it, I go for it. Really good. Yeah. But there's definitely like a, a typical, um, like a range of things I go for that would be in my style, but I don't know how to define. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and also at this point, it's maybe not as much anymore about your style because you already kind of, embodying it but more about and probably for some years now um sharing it with others and and helping them find their way in in everything because we're we're gonna talk about this you you've had some profession like an amazing professional journey like i've got a list here you've owned a store a studio you taught you had a craft school your designer um, a crafty shop, you travel to teach, you do online teaching, then, uh, there's, uh, all of that, but then in different skills, like a lot of crochet, sewing, pattern drafting, and much more. Those are some serious, uh, this is a serious list of business models. Do they feel like business models to you? No. No. And I, I think a lot of the things you listed, um, where they kind of overlapped like they might have been that you might have said the same actual thing in a few different ways so it sounded like more things but um no none of it the term business model a lot of the terms that you mentioned earlier like branding and business model like I know I know that they all apply but I also can't like directly feel like they well it's not that they don't apply to me but I've just never thought of them that way and I've, I've never done things uh, like I've never started a business thinking like this is the business model or or even what's it called a business plan I think like I tried when I opened my store I tried reading a few of those books about how to write a business plan because I wanted to do it the right way like I'm and I'm very, you know, I could be very studious and, you know, I try to like follow the rules if I think it's going to, you know, be the smart way to do it. And I had no way, I'd never even worked in a store before when I opened a store. So I felt like I should try to figure out how to do it. But everything I read in the books, like just felt like it didn't apply to me at all because it was all about like, you know, if you're planning to open a French fry store, Find out where the nearest French fry store is and make sure you're not, you know, too close to them. And like, I was like, well, I'm opening like a weird art clothing shop and I don't even know the products I'm going to buy because like this was before the Internet. And I was like, I can't find the people that make these things. They're going to have to find me. And like none of none of what I was doing applied to anything they were saying in the book. So I just finally was like, I just have to wing it and make it up as I go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And especially in the on the indie side of things, I think this is how we do it. Like most of us, I'm just going to say us, like uh, businesses in the indie fiber and needle crafts 
space. Um, we don't even have a name for that. Did you know that? I, I, I mean, maybe you do, but I, I made up the, or made up, I just pushed them together, fiber and needlecraft, because if I Google for it, there's not even a real industry name that combines all of it. If you want to build or grow your business in textile crafts, why don't you join our online community for the small monthly contribution of only 10 euros, which is basically $10-ish. You get to hang out, learn from, and share your business and your personal craft journey with all the lovely people there. Support the podcast at the same time, and you get everything wrapped into one loving package. I would love to welcome you there. Go to patternshift.fm and click community. And while you're there, sign up for our emails so you'll never miss a thing. Yeah, like especially sewing and let's just say yarn art. <laughs> they're all, they're completely Yarks. separate. Yarn. Yeah. That's a good yeah. business name. Let me write that down. <laughs> No, it's it's just it's we are kind of a different breed, aren't we? I think a, a lot of us really get get icky around those terms of branding and selling and all of that. But at the same time, we are making money by doing a thing, providing a service, selling a product, which doesn't make it that different. I think the thing that is sometimes missing is the way we talk about it and how we connect to it. Uh, because if you, um, let's talk about the fries and you open a business and um, uh, you open a business in a street where there's another craft store and one is about uh, the more generic yarns and you're about other types of yarns. And is that a good idea or is it a bad idea? Is it, it could go either way and it could be really smart to know a little bit about that before you kind of roll into this whole thing so with all the different things that you've done what kind of feels like it feels comes most natural to you yeah definitely selling is not my forte and teaching is but I only found that by having a store where I was trying to sell things. And that's where I learned that I'm not great at sales, but teach like in the store was where I started teaching. And because people would come in and be like, Oh, I love all these clothes, but I don't have any money, but I wish I could learn how to make clothes. And, and then they'd say like, do you teach clothing or sewing or? crochet and so you know you don't have to be very smart to figure out that if your customers are asking you for something and also like how my store was in a very like remote corner of new york city so didn't have a lot of foot traffic and in the winter when it gets dark early you know like around 4 30 i'd be open till eight o'clock and there would be hours and hours of darkness where people would like the few people that walked, I, I would look into my store and I could hear them outside talking about me. They would say like, how does she stay open? No one, I never see anyone go in there. 
So a big part of my incentive to start teaching was like, I just want to get people in the store doing something because New Yorkers and probably really people in most cities are like this. Like if they walk by a place and no one's in there, they're not interested. But if they see something going on and people sitting around a circle, like playing with yarn or something, you know, they're just like, what's going on in there? So it, it totally worked. But so at first I actually had a free crochet just to get people in the door. And then I quickly learned that having things for free, a lot of downsides to it, aside from the fact that you're not making any money. But people don't really respect it. They don't come back to the second class. So many issues. So I right away started charging after I think I got one class for free. And then, yeah, I just found that teaching felt so good to me. It felt like I'm giving people skills that they will have for a lifetime, whereas selling just always, to this day, it still feels like slightly icky to me. I think it's just not my nature. Like even when someone is buying a dress that I made and I'm charging them, uh, you know, I I charge what I think is like high enough price to justify the labor, but it's still just not my favorite yeah. feeling. I I love teaching. I love it. I've written down four things that can be connected directly to all those icky words, which is interesting because uh, when your customers are asking you for something and you provide it, what you're doing is customer research, uh-huh. right? So yeah. you could do that as you go, or you could do it upfront. It's not as sexy upfront. You rather be doing something else, but it could be very helpful. And um, when you say, um, yeah, you're in a remote area with not a lot of food traffic. I had the same thing. Um, I my first studio was in a in a in a space that used to be a, the fire department, and it was in between two streets. Like you couldn't get in there unless you was you you went under like a, a gate, and so you had to go under the gate around the building through two doors before you even got to the studio area. It's like nobody was there, but it was cheap. Yeah, that's, but, that's always, that. that's why I was where I was, because it yeah. was affordable. Yeah. Yes. And so that's maybe where you start and then you make some money and then you put a little bit of money aside. And then I moved into the street where there was a lot more food traffic. And of course it was more expensive, but I was also selling more. So. Right. This is also business. Then you said, so if you're teaching for free, a lot of downsides, people are not paying, are not respecting the gift that you're giving them. And that makes you not feel comfortable about what you're doing. Um, And something like that is obviously perfect as a marketing stunt. I'm going to just tease you with this like the whole time. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, so it was a genius marketing stunt, but not a good business model. Yeah. And, um, and then what you say is you love teaching. And, uh, I think if I may be so bold, I think that has to do with your values. You think you, pro- you know, and I know that you provide them with so much value that it doesn't feel icky to ask for money. Right. 
Yeah. And so that balance is right for you. And that helps you to love what you're doing and not feel weird about asking for money. Yep. Yeah. So what you're saying is like, I had a business plan all along. I just didn't know it. And I could only identify it in retrospect. Exactly. And I'm a genius. You are a genius. (laughs) You are definitely a genius. And also you are teaching now as well to whoever's learning now and listening can hear this. And it's like, yeah, okay. But there's not, I mean, I did it exactly like you did. Um, I, I did have a marketing education and an art education, but I wasn't a business owner. I, I just built it from the ground up, just grassrooted all of it. I, I had 300 euros and that's how I built my business. I didn't go to a bank, um, did it all like one step at a time, one step forward, three steps back, two steps forward, five steps back. And, uh, yes, in retrospect, things, I know things now that I love to share with people to make the process a little bit more, a little less bumpy and a little bit more connecting to their values and their needs. Because yeah, sometimes it's really, it's really hard. It can be hard. Yeah. It it sounds like we both went to the business school of having a business and learning from it as opposed to going to actual business school, which you know, I'm sure it's useful in some ways too, but maybe. I don't think actual business school is that useful for our grades. No, 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 no. Agree. Yeah. I do think there's a lot to be learned from people who are experienced in our uh, industry. I do believe yeah. that. I do have a lot of conversations with people about Instagram and how useful that may or may not be and how how that will help our business forward for some people absolutely and other people just feel really uncomfortable in the social media space and i think yeah what's important is to to know what you need and make decisions accordingly and from there uh, you can build a much healthier business that's more sustainable for yourself as well. So what did you learn the hard way that you wish you you could have learned a different way? I think it's uh, it always comes down to the money stuff is always the really awkward subject because it's often so awkward to bring. Um, but so one lesson that I've the hard way is that as as awkward as it is and as much as I'd like to procrastinate and talk about money in the beginning phases of making some kind of deal or you know getting hired to teach somewhere or any of that um it only gets more awkward the further down the line you are so bringing it up right off the bat and saying you know either this is what I charge or how much do you want to pay or, you know, somehow broaching the topic of payment and price. The earlier, the better, like in the very first, you know, or at least second email, because, you know, too often it it just seems like, oh, she's just casually asking, you know, if I'm available for something or describing what she wants me to, you know, teach for. And, like, I'll bring it up later. 
And then the further down the line we go and the more details we've worked out without talking about it, it only gets worse and worse. And when it finally comes up later, which usually I find it has to be me to bring up, which I always think is weird. Um, then suddenly it's like, oh, wait, like I, I remember having a situation where I'd been talking to a shop for months about teaching for them and we had never talked about payment. And when they finally, um, I finally brought it up, they were like, oh, we were planning to pay our teachers $12 an hour. I was like, oh, no, (laughs) not. And I mean, this was years ago, but still, I like my plan is, well, it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, no, like even hourly at all, like teaching for a class is not an hourly wage. Two hours of the class is not what, you know, what you're literally going to pay me for at an hourly wage. So anyway, yeah, I've learned no, that that's, lesson. That's really, I, if, if this is very, very great, valuable information, like you teach for two hours, but what else happens before you can teach that? Can you give us a little bit of insight in the process? What are they paying for? Well, so there's all the, well, there's the lifetime of skill development in order to be a teacher of anything. And then there's the the lifetime of making samples. I bring samples to my classes from 10 years ago or more. There's uh, all the preparation literally for the specific class and the marketing and the writing the class description in a juicy, enticing way and the photograph. Like there's, yeah, so many details. Yeah. So... There's definitely, it's very important if you take yourself seriously as a business to set some boundaries to keep yourself happy and healthy. And also, um, you are an expert in your fields and it's very important to, to own that and to, uh, sell yourself as such. And uh, this is, this is great. This is a great tip. Just get it out there. Just right away, get that money thing out, out the email box and yeah, take care of it. Because otherwise all your time is wasted in, you know, if you do lots of communication and emails before you talk about it and then it's, you can't come to an agreement you're either going to be working for not enough pay or the whole thing is going to be scrapped and therefore all your time was wasted in communicating up till that point. So that's why, yeah, it just seems like absolutely get it out. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with you being you as an entrepreneur, not necessarily talking to you, Cal, but right. to it has nothing to do with being kind or not kind. You're just being professional. And that helps everybody in the end. So most of your time now, how do you spend it? What do you do mostly? Well, uh, I mean, most of my time in general is geared toward teaching, even if I'm not literally teaching most of my time. Um, But I'm... Doing the background support stuff, the sample making, the um, rushing up on skills for the specific class I'm going to teach. Like, 
I'm lately I've been into teaching a lot of kind of longer format classes. Like I have a year long class and right now I'm doing a 16 week class um, on hand. And is that local or online? They're both virtual. Yeah. The longer format seem to work well virtual because I live in a very remote area. So I don't have a huge pool of people to pull pull from in my immediate local area. So yeah, so often with a longer class, I just need to like, you know, do a little research or practicing or developing of new skills and samples for the topic that's coming up this month or this week. So I do a lot of that here in I'm in my studio, which is not in my house. How do you kind of balance that where you don't travel enough? Like, what's a good balance for you? So, yeah, finding balance in the traveling and teaching is a tricky thing. And I'm not sure that I've really figured it out. I would say just before the pandemic, I was starting to feel like I was traveling a little bit too much because it's really hard to say no to things that they all sound so fun. And retreats, like you mentioned, they're my favorite way to teach because I just love I'm going to a, a beautiful place and meeting a bunch of new people who all they're interested in making clothes or they already make clothes. So we have a lot in common right off the bat. And we're going to go to a fun place where we're escaping from our normal lives. We don't have to wash any dishes or prepare any food. Everything's going to be set up in advance. And we just get to think about the funs of learning and making. And I mean, what's better than that? So it's my favorite way to teach, but it does mean traveling and disrupting your life. And at the same time as the beautiful thing of ignoring regular life, it also means when you come back, all that stuff has been ignored and you still have to go back and do it, catch up on the emails and pay the bills. I think when I hit that peak of like, this might be a little too much, I was traveling about twice a month. Um, Sometimes for a week, sometimes maybe just for three days or so, but and then teaching locally in between. But now I'm trying not to travel more than once a month, although like in July, I'm going to be gone for three weeks straight. So it's hard to really control because a lot of events are fixed in time and You know, I have, there's no flexibility, so I either can do it or not do it. And I just, I try to spread things out as much as I can, but sometimes they just all end at the same time. But the virtual teaching now since the pandemic has been, I mean, it's a mixed bag for sure. And there are things that I love and things that I don't love about it. But the fact that I can come to my studio, which is about a 10-minute drive from my house, and teach 45 people who are all over the world. I mean, it it still blows my mind when I think about it. Like, it's amazing. And not just teach those people, but like, 
in a way, it's it's a very it could be a very personal connection. I mean, definitely a lot of people kind of keep their camera off and don't connect a lot. But a lot of the people, you know, it's like I'm seeing into their house. You know, I feel like, you know, their pets are walking around. And if they do choose, if they choose to really engage, which I try to encourage people to do in my classes, because I like it so much better if we really connect, you know, there really can be a very meaningful personal connection. Absolutely. In some ways, more than in a lot. And for the students often too, it's so much less distracting, like a live class with eight or 12 people who are all interested in things you're interested in. It's really fun, but it's also really distracting and it can be hard to focus because you're like, oh, oh, you know, look at you doing. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that about classes and I think people, the students do too, but it's not always the best atmosphere for the learning and absorbing. Mm. So in so many ways, the virtual classes have been really amazing. So now that I can sprinkle those in between my traveling, it, it's kind of really amazing because it's just a lot less time and effort because I don't have to travel. Yeah. Yeah. I think virtual learning sometimes gets a bad rap in, in, the area of analog making because people are scared of the screen sometimes or they say yeah. but I'm behind the screen the rest of the day too and then I go yeah like I use my eyes the whole day so I think it's just a again like a pattern shift it's a way to to look differently at things and what you're saying about being uh, the distractions are less and it's also less disrupting from your day. So all you need yeah. to do is move in front of the camera and set up your own space. That's probably already kind of set up and, and you don't have to go anywhere. You can wear the same clothes. If you don't want to wear deodorant, I mean, you don't have to any case where you, where if, even if you <laughs> need a queen, whatever you like, but, um, <laughs> You know, I think we, um, it's, it's important to, to look at the positive effects of what that means that you can teach a whole new group of people all over the world. And there's also still the option to be people in person, which is just another different thing, but they're both equally, uh, wonderful in their own rights. Yeah. And, and I think it sounds like a great balance. And, um, I was just wondering one, one thing. You have a lot of contact with people that you teach, students. Um, do you have a lot of connections to other business owners? Do you, um, and do you feel like that's perfect? I'm okay. Or do you sometimes feel like you want to, find out how other people are doing things or are you curious or yeah no I I definitely crave more I do have a small circle of friends that you know do related things but um we all often talk about how we wish we had more connection or more of a community of business crafty business people, you know, when it comes to 
Like I recently taught at a retreat where another friend was teaching also. And then someone I know is going to be teaching at it next year. And so we've all been like in touch about like, well, how much, what rate, you know, just our teaching rate in general. And like, like just that topic is always, you know, every time someone asks me a teacher rate, I'm like, I'll tell them what mine is, but I am always like, how does this compare to everyone else? Like if they're asking five teachers, am I at the top? Am I at the bottom? I have no idea. Should we be raising it every year? Like, who knows? And I'm terrible about, you know, being that person, like that role where I'm advocating for myself. Uh, You know, even though I said bring up the money early, I'm not actually good about how to handle the bringing up. But you found a solution to deal with it because you don't feel comfortable about it, which makes it so professional. And that is the reason that you are probably where you are right now, because you're talented, you know what you're doing, and you found ways to to do things your way and it, and it works. So, yeah. Yeah. And then probably you could uh, teach another one of your friends a little bit about that and they could teach you something else. And it's just really, really valuable to to know what's going on behind the scenes. But I think a lot of business owners are scared to share um, their quote unquote secrets with each other because they feel it's a little bit competitive or somebody might steal my ideas. And that was, um, I talked about that with Pilar from uh, Chile. We had that conversation about stealing ideas and stuff, but at the same time, you kind of really need support in different ways because we kind of all, this is our whole conversation. We kind of not making it up as we go along, but we kind of organically flowing into this business journey and pick some things up along the way. And how wonderful would it be if we could like support each other in this, in the areas where we feel uncomfortable and maybe not so, um, confident? Like, even if we are, we've managed to make a name for ourselves, we're still human. We still don't feel comfortable about all the aspects of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree and definitely see that it would be useful to have a lot more people to talk to about. Call me and Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope I didn't put you on the spot too much. I know it was a different angle than usually. We didn't even talk about specific um, designs or anything. We really went into the backside of what it's like to own a business for you. And you've been so open and so generous. Thank you so much. I love talking about all of this stuff. And I'm I'm very honored to have been invited and I'd be happy to do it again. Amazing. So let's wrap things up with some thoughts. Here's the deal. Cal learned a ton by taking action and figuring out what actually worked for her. She tried different business models, made mistakes, and learned from them. And you know what? That's exactly how I did it too. Sometimes trial and error is the best teacher, even if it sounds cliche. Now let's talk about running a business. It's a whole different thing 
compared to being a creative, an artist, a teacher, or a designer. We often cringe at terms like marketing, selling, and branding, but guess what? We need them. We need the strategies, plans, and have a clue about what we're doing. And most importantly, we need to learn from our mistakes, grow, and keep on building on top of them. But here's the thing. We don't make the most of what's available to us. Being a small business owner can be a lonely journey, and it's natural to be hesitant about sharing our thoughts and ideas. You think it's tough enough to grow your business, and you don't want to spill your secrets. But let me tell you one. You don't have to spill them all. We can still learn so much from each other, believe me. Take a moment to think about what Cal said about setting an hourly rate for teaching. It shouldn't be a brain-teasing puzzle every single time. It should be simple to figure out your price and increase it as you gain more experience. And you know where you can learn all these things? By talking to fellow folks in the fiber and needlecraft industry. Connect with them at shows, festivals, or hop on a call to discuss your experiences. It's like a goldmine of knowledge. Oh, and there's a really other easy way to do it too. You can join the Yavol community. Um, we've got a free space for everyone that just wants to join and get in touch with other people. And if you're serious, you can also join our business program, the Yavol Business Circle. It's like having a support system tailored just for entrepreneurs like you. So do you really need a business plan? Eh, not really. Unless you need it for official things, uh, like leases and, and all that kind of boring stuff. No, very important stuff. Uh, but even then, you don't have to make the whole thing. Sometimes just a one-page business model is all you need. So I do believe that a little prep work and making smart decisions can save you loads of time and money on your business journey. There are some shortcuts, my friends. And... um I didn't take them, but I know which ones to take now. So I'm sharing it with you on this podcast. So here's what I do and how I do it. This is my three-step process that I deeply believe in. First, figure out what lights you up and what you need as a person. Secondly, understand your customer, their needs and who they are. And finally, provide a product or a service that fulfills both your needs and theirs. It's a win-win. So remember this, you can only make money if you offer something people want. And you can only keep going if it fits into your life. The best way to navigate all of this is to learn from experienced business owners. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. We can do all the learning, growing, and thriving together. If you want to connect, go to patternshift.fm and sign up for our emails or link through to our community. Hope to see you there.